Exodus 34, we'll begin reading at verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. And no man shall come up with you, and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. So he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Then he said, if now I found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are stiff-necked uh, stiff people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. And he said, behold, I make a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among whom you are, sh whom you are, you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite and the Canaanite, and the Hittite and the Perizzite, and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. Now you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden idols. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and make sacrifice to their gods, and one of them invites you, and you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. You shall make no molded gods for yourselves. The feast of unleavened bread you shall keep. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you, in the appointed time of the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out from Egypt. All that open the womb are mine, and every male firstborn among your livestock, whether ox or sheep. But the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem him, then you shall break his neck. And all the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. And none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks of the first fruits of wheat harvest and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year all your men shall appear before the Lord, the Lord, uh, the Lord God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven, nor shall the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover be left until morning. The first of the firstfruits of your land you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. 
Now it was so, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And he would come out and speak to the children of Israel whatever he had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our great God, we ask again that you would send forth your spirit amongst us this evening to better understand how you've revealed yourself to us. We're thankful that Christ Jesus is the one who is full of grace and truth in him. We see your covenant faithfulness. We're thankful that we do see your goodness and grace toward the old covenant people in this way as you revealed yourself to Moses as the Lord, the Lord God, the one who is merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. Thank you that you are this God. Thank you that you are our God. And we ask and pray that we would recognize that you are a God who pardons, you are a God who forgives, and help us to be reminded that you've forgiven us of all our iniquity because of the sufficiency of the crosswork of Christ. Thank you again for the incarnation. Thank you for the crosswork of our Savior. And we ask and pray because of your promises, because of who you are, we ask and pray that you would hear us when we pray. And we ask and pray that you would help us now as we come and consider your words, speak to us, encourage us, uplift us, we pray. Help us by your spirit to be strengthened, be pleased to save sinners. And we pray in all things you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, a lot of what we saw this morning will be uh, somewhat repeated this evening as we consider God's revelation to Moses in Exodus chapter 34. And uh, one thing we mentioned this morning is we talked about that ontological chasm between God and man. God is God and we are man. We are not the same being as God. And thus we need to recognize that God has life in himself and he is the one who gives life. And because of this chasm, God has to condescend to us. And the way in which he condescends to us is even at creation by way of covenant. So there is this being, there's differences between us and God. But because of sin, there is an ethical chasm. God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. We are unholy. We are unrighteous and we are unjust. And the reality is we brought sin and misery into this present world. We brought sin and misery. Adam brought sin and misery into this fallen age. In order for us then to have a blessed life, which is with God, we need him to condescend to us. We need him to be merciful to us. We need him to remove our misery. Now, Israel was in a miserable state after the golden calf situation. They brought sin and misery upon themselves because of their idolatry. And the question is raised, how can they dwell with a holy God? Now, remember, that's the main purpose of the book of Exodus. The Exodus is not the main purpose of the book of Exodus. They were brought up out of the land of Egypt for a specific reason, namely that God would dwell with his chosen 
race. And so he has redeemed them. Uh, he has said he's going to dwell with them. Uh, certainly we're in that section that deals with dwelling. We saw how he's delivered, he's demanded, and then now he's preparing them for his dwelling, how he would descend uh, in a cloud into that tabernacle. So we're in that section on the, with the blueprints of that tabernacle. And then we see that Israel goes astray. Israel goes after a golden calf. And so the reality is people need mercy because people are sinful. People need mercy because we are miserable and sin brings misery uh, into our lives. And so Israel needed mercy in an old covenant way. Yahweh would still go with them. Yahweh, will you still go with us? Now, all of mankind needs mercy in a new covenant way. We need our sins forgiven and we need to be able to dwell with him. And it has to be by way of something that God does. We need our misery dispelled. We need our sin removed. And that is how we can then dwell with God. For an unholy person, an unholy being, cannot dwell with a holy God. So that sin must be removed in order for us then to dwell with God. And so in Exodus 34, verses 5 through 9, we see that Yahweh reveals he is the merciful Lord, and he is just the merciful and gracious Lord that a stiff-necked people need. He reveals himself to them, he reveals who he is, and he reveals who he is to us as well. And so we'll look at the merciful Lord, we'll look at the Lord God, the name of the Lord, under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see the Lord who proclaims in verses 5 through 7. Secondly, we'll see the Lord who pardons in verses 8 and 9. We see who the Lord is, how he reveals himself, and then we see what he does for a wretched people, and then how we can live in light of that very thing. So the Lord who proclaims and the Lord who pardons. So let's first look at the Lord who proclaims in verses 5 through 7. Now again, it's in the section that deals with the golden calf, but God said he would be gracious. Moses has come. He's interceded for the people. He said, here's who you are, Lord. Now, please go with your people. Be with us. We do not want to go unless you are the one who goes with us. Israel had violated the covenant. There was this rival to the dwelling of God, this golden calf, this worshiping the golden calf. As God is giving the blueprints to Moses, here is how you worship me. Here is where you worship me. Here is where I'm going to dwell. And yet the people were, not, uh, were going after a golden calf instead. So the question arose, the question was raised, what about Yahweh's presence? Again, how can a holy God dwell with a stiff-necked people? So again, Moses intercedes. Oh, Lord, we know you are good. We know you are gracious. And we see Yahweh's goodness is seen in his mercy. We see his mercy in the fact that he removes misery. That's what God does as a merciful God. We see God is good in his grace, that he gives us things that we do not deserve. He dispels our misery. He removes it. He removes sin, and he gives good gifts. God is good in many ways, and he reveals himself in many ways uh, as the good God. And so then he begins to start this renewal process. We're in covenant renewal here in Exodus 34. As Yahweh appears to Moses, it has to do with the, it's all um, in that context where Moses or God says to Moses, I'm going to cut out two tablets of stone. 
Come up to Mount Sinai again for 40 days and 40 nights. Come up, just you. And that's when the Lord appears. And then after the Lord appears and shows his goodness and reveals who he is, we then see the covenant renewed. And Israel still had to operate according to that old covenant way. But God is renewing that with them. And it's very similar to what we see in Exodus 3 and Exodus 19 and 20. We see the covenant Lord and a good Lord. In Exodus 19 and 20, the emphasis seems to be on God's holiness. Again, how is it that a people can dwell with God in general? How is it that a sinful people can dwell with God? Well, we need Exodus 19, all the thunder and all the lightning before we have Exodus 20, where the law then is given. People need to be re uh, to revere God in order to recognize that he is the lawgiver who gives that very law. They needed to be in awe of his holiness. But it didn't do much, I guess, because then they were dancing around a golden calf a little bit later in Exodus 32. But the emphasis here seems to be the grace of the Lord. There it's his holiness, thunder, lightning, but now it's the Lord who reveals himself as the gracious Lord, and he is just the Lord that they need. They have just sinned. They have just done a vile thing. Some of the greatest instances of God's grace in the scriptures comes right after some of the most heinous acts of God's people. Golden calf, and now God is saying that he is merciful and gracious. God still is just. God still will punish but nonetheless, we see that he is a God who is gracious. Henry says he made himself known to Moses in the glory of his self-existence. He's talking about Exodus 3 here. And self-sufficiency when he proclaimed that name, I am that I am. Now he makes himself known in the glory of his grace and goodness and all sufficiency to us. When we see the context, it magnifies God's grace all the more. And so he says to Moses, come up again to Mount Sinai. So Moses does that. He brings the tablets of stone. And then we see the Lord's passing in verse 5. How the Lord descends, how the Lord condescends, how the Lord appears in a sensible way to Moses. God's kindness and goodness to even stoop in this way to Moses. Now remember, Moses asked, Lord, can I see you? We see that in 33:18. Lord, please show me your glory. But the Lord says, no one can see my face and live. No one can see me and live. And so then uh, Yahweh says, then here's what's going to happen. I'm going to pass by. I will show you. I reveal myself to you in this special way. But you cannot see me. You cannot see my essence. And so then we see the revelation. We see the fulfillment of Yahweh's uh, promise in Exodus chapter 34. God condescends. God condescends once again on Mount Sinai to Moses as he reveals himself just before the covenant is renewed. So we see that in verse 5. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord comes and he speaks. That's how God condescends. He speaks. He spoke to Adam, entered into covenant with Adam. God spoke and said, uh, even as he's cursing the, the serpent, there's this promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. God speaking to us is God's condescension to his creatures, mainly to condescension to man, his, the pinnacle of creation, the, the, those who are created in his image. God speaks to man and he speaks to sinful man in this way and he speaks to us in Christ Jesus. 
And so he descends. He descends in that cloud, that sensible sight, that sensible representation of who of God's dwelling with the people. That's why in Exodus 40, we see that this, the cloud descends upon that tabernacle, a sign of Yahweh's presence. Now, as there's this sign of Yahweh's presence with Moses, again, he stood with him there. He is with him there. And the Lord proclaims, he speaks the name of the Lord. Now, God condescends to us in Scripture. As I've said before, as I've heard many men say, Scripture is baby talk. It's accommodating to us. And even we see this with the name of the Lord and the names of the Lord. You see, there is only one Lord, the name who he is, but there are many names that then further flesh out who this one is. And so it's analogical predication. We know God analogically. All of what we see here is reminiscent of the burning bush. I am who I am. He proclaims the name of the Lord. Who is this God? Who is he in his name? And then what are his names that further reveal who our God is? So we have Yahweh, the covenant name of the Lord, we have other names like El, which we're going to see here. Almighty Elohim, El Elyon, God Most High, and many others as well. Who our God is to further help us who have small, non-deified brains to help us understand who our God is in a way that we can understand. It is God's goodness to speak in these ways. So he descends and he proclaims the name of the Lord. But then we also see in verse 6, we see, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. This goes with what we see, how the Lord said he was going to pass by. I will pass by in Exodus 33, verse 22. I will cover with you my hand while I pass by. Again, it's just going to be a glimpse into who this God is. It's just going to be a glimpse and a quick revelation in this special way uh, for Moses by Yahweh. Yahweh fulfills his promise. Here's his favorable presence. He is passing, and we see Yahweh fulfills what he said he would do for Moses. Now, one thing I want to highlight is that in many places in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the I am. John highlights this throughout. That's why of all the I am statements, before Abraham was, I am. Uh, John 18, as Judas comes to arrest Jesus, he says, I am. And we see that all the people step back. John includes that for a reason. They step back and bow down because I am carries significant meaning because it refers back to the covenant Lord, the name that the Jews would not have said. And so we see that Jesus himself is Yahweh. Jesus himself is God. But one other thing I want to point out, and we looked at this when we looked at Jesus walking on water in Mark's account. In John 6, 45, as Jesus passes by the people, that word isn't used very often in the New Testament. And I think there is some faint echo in Mark 6 all the way back to Exodus 34. Here is God's goodness as Jesus comes and as the people are in chaos and the, and the disciples are forgetful, the disciples have forgotten, the people have forgot, here is God who passes by. Here is our Christ who is God, who is Yahweh, who stands upon the waters, who controls the waters, and here is God revealing himself to the disciples. Here is the one who reigns supreme over all 
And here's the one who reveals himself as the good God. It's a faint echo. The word is actually not used very often. I do think it has some reference back to what we see. I mean, Israel was forgetful. They're forgetful of God and his goodness. I mean, the whole section in Mark 6, the whole section is the forgetfulness of Israel during that time as well. The forgetfulness of God's holiness, the forgetfulness of God's goodness. And yet God is pleased to reveal himself. And the disciples saw Jesus pass by. Moses sees the Lord pass before him and he proclaims. So the Lord passes by and then we see his revelation, his proclamation, what the Lord says, how he reveals himself to Moses. And notice we see the name proclaimed. We see the Lord who is unchangeable. He is the covenant Lord, the Lord. I mean, he is Yahweh. He is, I am who I am. He does not change. He is the unchangeable covenant Lord. He is immutable. You and I go through seasons of change. You and I change every day. God himself does not. God does not change. It is imperfection to change. But the one who does not change is perfection. When we talk about our God, we're talking about by way of negation. He is the one who is perfect. We are imperfect. He is the one who is unchangeable. We are changeable. We don't get what it means to be unchangeable, so we have to speak in a way that says not changeable because it is diff we cannot comprehend God in his essence. But he reveals himself as the one who does not change. But notice he is the Lord. He is the Lord God. He is the Lord God Almighty. That is the word L that is used there. He is the Almighty One. He is perfect. He is infinite. And he is infinite in power. He is the one who is almighty. And our confession in chapter 2, paragraph 1, has so many references back to Exodus 34. Even when we get to the God who is merciful and gracious, iniquity, transgression. I mean, it's all, I mean, it's just right there. Here's who our God is. I mean, Exodus 34, if you had a passage, if you have a New Year's resolution, you want to memorize more scripture, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. You should have that as the top of the list. Do it right now. Whatever other verses you have, that one needs to be at the top of the list. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, as we see who our God is. Now, again, God is accommodating to us here. When we see the different words that are used of our God, it's just different ways of conveying the one and the same God. There's God in himself, who he is, and there's what God does for us. And even as he reveals himself, we see God's goodness toward us with the words that are used here. So he's the God who does not change, and we see what he does not change in. We see how he is merciful and gracious. As we've said, he dispels misery and he gives good gifts. He is a gracious God. Now, we can be merciful. We can dispel mercy or dispel someone's misery with a kind word, but God is mercy. <laughs> God is merciful. God is good. God is gracious. You and I may or may not uh, have that quality, but God himself is merciful. It is who he is. And so he's full of mercy. We saw this in Psalm 103. That's why we used it. He is full of mercy, slow to anger and merciful. We see his gracious. And the word used for gracious here is only used of God in the scriptures. And a lot of the times it has to do when the people cry out to God, 
It is a gracious thing that the God of heaven and earth hears us. Brethren, we sometimes feel like God doesn't hear us, but it is a gracious thing that the God who does not change hears his people. And we're going to see that Moses, when he prays to God, he does so based upon who God is. He clings to the promises of God, but he also recognizes and clings to who God is when he prays in verses 8 and 9. But before we get there, we're getting the theology. We're getting the truth. We're getting here is who God is, merciful and gracious. Now again, continuing on with that accommodation language, long-suffering. God bears. God is patient. God is long-suffering. We see, in the, remember the context, the stiff-necked people and their rejection of God. God was very patient with Israel. I mean, how often did they do terrible things? I mean, golden calf. They just came out of Egypt. And all of a sudden, golden calf. Let's worship this instead. I mean, when you read the entire, like, kings and... I mean, how many times the people of Israel do terrible, awful, wicked things, and yet God is long-suffering? At the end of the book of Chronicles, uh, we see in 2 Chronicles 36, it says that God was gracious to send prophets to warn them. But what did they do? They continually rejected him. God's warnings are a sign of his goodness, and the people, the stiff-necked people, continue to reject him. But he is long-suffering. He is patient. And notice again, abounding in goodness and truth. Abounding in covenant faithfulness. That's that word chesed, that loving kindness. Abounding in goodness and truth. And truth here has to do with faithfulness. Israel is not faithful. Israel doesn't keep the covenant, but God is faithful. God is good. God is reliable. God is one that they can trust. So he's merciful. He's gracious. He's long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. But also notice he is forgiving, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God has been patient and kind, and it's because of who he is. There's nothing to, has nothing to do with us. We see in 33, 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God's goodness is because he is good. God's forgiveness is because he is forgiving. It has nothing to do with you and I. He has nothing to do with looking down the corridors of time and seeing that man would be gracious, man would be kind, man would do... No, it has everything to do with the God who is gracious and good. That's the point of Exodus because the people are not good. The people are vile. The people are idolatrous. The people worship a golden calf rather than the one true God. And yet he is forgiving, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But he's also just by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. He cannot clear the guilty. There must still be punishment. There must still be sacrifice. There must still be atonement. In order for a holy uh, God, in order for an unholy people to dwell with a holy God after sin has come into the world, it requires sacrifice. 
That's why the book of Leviticus starts with sacrifice, because it's how the people are supposed to approach God. It is by way of sacrifice. And then the rest of it, the holiness codes, deals with how man is to walk with God. But we need sacrifice. We need someone to stand in the stead and bear the punishment uh, in the place of a wicked people. Otherwise, if there's not another, then a sinner will bear his own punishment forever. Clearly, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is the God who proclaims who he is. This is the God who is good. All of this is meant to be practical. All of theology proper, I've tried to say it a million times, it is very practical because it is who our God is. We need to know him in order to know how we ought to honor him. We need to know him as we pray to him. We need to know who he is because if we recognize that he is a God who is forgiving, we ought to pray in such a way. But we need to recognize that he is the God who has proclaimed these things. He has been gracious and good, and he's told us. He's laid it out for us in the scriptures. Here is salvation. Here is what you are. Here is, your, I, I'm, here is uh, what you've done. And here is the way to find forgiveness in me, in the Son. He has laid it all out for us in the scriptures. And yet so often we do not listen, do we? <laughs> so often we do not listen to our God as much as we should. Think about it, if there's a famous person, someone we admire, and they spoke to us, we would probably stop and listen and hang on every word. If a Puritan were to fall out of heaven today, John Owen or Spurgeon or Thomas Watson, whoever you like, if they were to fall to heaven, you would sit here for hours, right? Maybe not hours, but you might sit here for hours and listen to everything that they have to say. But yet we don't do that with God as much as we should, do we? We don't do that with our Lord as much as we ought. We don't hang on every word that he says in the scriptures. Now, I'm not saying you quit your jobs and just read the Bible. I'm not saying that very thing. But the point is we need to be a people who listens and hears our God. Christ speaks to us in the scriptures. Christ speaks to us every day. And meeting a famous person is rare, but we thankfully hear God speak to us in his word every Lord's Day and every time we read the scriptures. And maybe that's why it can get mundane. Let's be honest, sometimes reading the scriptures can get mundane because we do it a lot. But rather not, not to, it is God speaking to us. It is the God of heaven and earth speaking to us in the scriptures. And we can pray back to him and he hears us because he has condescended to us to reveal himself to us, to pass before his people and proclaim who he is. Shouldn't we hear him? Now, brethren, if you struggle to hear him, there is mercy and forgiveness because he is a God who is merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. This is who our God is. This is how he's revealed himself to us. This is the Lord who proclaims. So let's then move on to the Lord who pardons in verses 8 and 9. He does forgive. But notice we see it's the response of Moses. Here's the revelation Here's the response of Moses. A lot of what we see in verses 8 and 9 is application. And so we see the Lord who is worshipped. Verse 8. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. He was quick to fall down. <laughs> 
he prostrated himself before the Lord because even the presence of God, even in analogical knowledge, should elicit this response from man. Even just the scratching of the surface of who God is should elicit the response that man falls before him in worship. This is the right demeanor of man before a holy God. Reverence and recognition of the majesty, grace, and glory of God. Moses does that. Here's a good God. He goes and he bows down, head toward the earth, and he worships the Lord. It's that response to the favorable presence of God. And that response always ought to be worship. If God has been so gracious, shouldn't we be so reverent? If God has been so kind, shouldn't we be so obedient? That's why the Christian life is not uh, one of earning our way of salvation, but it's a response to the goodness of God. If he has been so good, should we not honor and glorify him? If he is so gracious, isn't it right to go and uh, honor and glorify him, but also have increased boldness as we bring our requests to God? See how it's practical? Here's who our Lord is. He is gracious and good. And so when we pray to him, we can say, Lord, you are gracious and good. Now, please be gracious and good to me. And that's exactly what Moses does in verse 9. Then he said, if now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. The prerequisite for prayer is God's grace. And God's grace to dwell amongst a wicked people, to save a people that we might dwell with him. Let's be honest. Can a non-Christian really pray to the God with whom he is at enmity with? Can a non-Christian really pray to this God? Because the prerequisite is the grace of God. The prerequisite is the regeneration of God, removing that heart of stone and giving a heart of flesh. And we see that God is good. And this is Moses' purpose. You are good. Now here's our request. Go with us. And notice their stiff-neckedness doesn't change. Even though we are a stiff-necked people, they never stop being stiff-necked, but Yahweh is going to go with them, as he said in Exodus 33. Everything about Moses' prayer is praying God's promises back to God. It's praying who God is back to God. It's praying God's words back to God. That is what biblical prayer is. It says it in the children's catechism. If it's good for the children, it should be good for you and I. Here's what God says, and we pray it back. You are gracious, you are good. Even though we're stiff-necked, now please go with us as you said you would, Exodus 33. Please pardon our iniquity and sin, as you are the God who is merciful and gracious, who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, and then also take us as your inheritance. Gil says, and therefore have need of such a one to be with them, to rule and govern them, to restrain and keep them within due bounds, or though it is a, for though, or though it is a stiff-necked people, for this is the reason given by the Lord why he should not go among them. Wherefore Moses prays that he would go, notwithstanding this stiff-neckedness. He owns the character of them, and yet humbly prays that God would nevertheless vouchsafe his presence. Here's a wicked people. They have sinned, but Lord, you are gracious and good. Please go amongst 
us, pardon our iniquity. And all this forgiving and pardoning, this language is used in Leviticus 4 and 5, talking about the various offerings, again, for the old covenant people, how they approached unto God was by way of those old covenant offerings. And he pardons out of his good pleasure, not for merit's sake. And then the reward is he takes his people as an inheritance. Again, take us as your inheritance. They violated the covenant. God is completely just to not go with them. But the covenant is then renewed. They are that inheritance once again. And we see that renewal continue in verses 10 and following. Yahweh reminds them of his power. Yahweh reminds them of his demand. And notice pretty much everything about the demand here is worship. Worship me. Honor me. Don't worship golden calves. My name is jealous. Do not worship any other thing. Drive out the Hivites and the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Amorites. Everything that we see here has to do with worship. The Decalogue is written once again. We see that in verse 28. And then Moses descends and we see his face shining which is a reminder of Yahweh's presence with the people. We see Moses' shining face, how Yahweh spoke to the people was by way of Moses, who then had spoke to God, or spoke to God face to face and then spoke to the people. Now, thankfully, as we saw this morning, we know who the one who is full of grace and truth is. It's Christ Jesus. He is the one where we see the full revelation of God. And when you consider the wickedness of Israel, shouldn't it magnify what Christ does all the more as the one who is full of grace and truth, that he would dwell amongst us, that he would dwell among us as the word becomes flesh and tabernacles among such people? And let's be honest, again, as I said this morning, what would seem more extraordinary would be this cleft of the rock and Yahweh passing by to, the, to, 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 to our eyes, but when we see just a man. But in reality, it is the miracle of miracles, the God-enfleshed one. That is where we see the full revelation of who God is. And it's in Christ that we receive pardon. It's in Christ that we can dwell with a holy God because God pardons us because of Christ Jesus. He pardons our iniquity because he is the good God and he redeems such undeserving people. Now, there are three lines of application that we can make based upon what we see. Now, again, this whole section is application, but there really could be four, four Ps. God pardons us because he is good, and we can find our mercy and forgiveness in him, flee to him by faith. Secondly, because he pardons and removes our sin and iniquity, we can dwell with God. We can have the presence of God with such undeserving people. That should, that should be a thing that causes us to marvel as well. And then based upon the fact that we are, have pardon and we have God's presence, we then should pray. We should pray to God and we should pray according to God's ways. This is exactly what Nehemiah does in Nehemiah 9. He alludes back to what we see in Exodus 34. Remember Jonah's problem? God was too gracious. God was too kind and Jonah did not want the Ninevites to receive mercy and grace. Remember Jonah? He's like, Lord, you're going to be gracious to them. I know who you are, and I don't want you to be gracious to them. I mean, the point is, God is more gracious than you and I are, because he is slow to anger 
and abounding in steadfast love. And so Jonah 4 alludes to this as well. And Nahum also alludes to this as well, but highlighting the justice of God. But Nehemiah prays to God and he appeals to who God is in light of the sins of the people. You are the God who is merciful and gracious. So when we pray, we pray God's promises back to him. And one special thing that we need to take to heart is that our intimacy is greater than Moses' was. This is exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Moses had a veiled face. Moses spoke with God face to face, and yet the one greater than Moses has come, and we as the people of God can approach unto our God without fear, with boldness because of the Savior. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he's talking about the new covenant ministry, the, the greatness of the new covenant, how it is greater than the old. And he goes on to talk about the difference between the veil on Moses' face and uh, talking about the freedoms that we have in Christ. And he says in verse 14 of chapter 3, For their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. We have a great intimacy with our God and we ought then, that ought then to stir us to pray all the more that we have this great privilege that we get to speak to our Lord in such an intimate way. So we get to pray. And the last thing we need is patience. Patience until the Lord comes back. Because what's interesting is James also alludes to Exodus 34. As we await the new heavens and new earth, we long to see Christ as he truly is. But we do not see him, we see him by faith and not by sight. But in James 5, as James talks about being patient and waiting upon the Lord, he does say in verse 9, don't grumble or complain against one another, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. What he's trying to say here is in this fallen world, as we await the new heavens and new earth, as we await the latter days, as we await the Lord who is at hand, this life is filled with sorrow, isn't it? This life is filled with so much sin. This life is filled with so much suffering, so much so that you and I grumble and complain a lot. You and I murmur. You and I moan. We get angry when we ought not to. We have troubles that we deal with. We have persecutions that people endure. What are we to do? To endure. We, indeed, we count them blessed, the prophets who endure. And you've heard of the perseverance of Job. Job and seen the end intended by the Lord. We know that all things work together for the good for those who are called according to his purpose. Why? Because the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. 
That should give us comfort in this fallen present age as we have to deal with dark providences that God is very merciful and compassionate. We can pray to him, we can dwell with him, and thankfully we have pardon in him because he is the one who is gracious and the one who is good. He is gracious, he is good. Let us go to him, let us trust in him. If you have not believed on Christ, believe upon him. He is, Christ is the one who is full of goodness and truth and it's only in Christ Jesus you can have your sins forgiven. This is the Lord God, who proclaims who he is, the one who is merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. Well, let us pray. Our great God, we are thankful for the intimacy that we have with you through Christ Jesus, our Lord, that we can approach you boldly with unveiled face, and we can approach you as your people who... Uh, come before you through Christ our Lord, who is the one who is full of grace and truth. We confess we do not comprehend who you are really, but we're thankful that you reveal yourself to be the God who is merciful and gracious, the one who pardons. And so we are thankful that all of our sins are pardoned, all of our sins are forgiven because Christ's work is sufficient. And we ask and pray that when we come before you and we still struggle with remaining sins, we struggle with grumbling and complaining and moaning, we pray that we would know that you are a God who will forgive us. You are merciful and gracious. You are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness because Christ is sufficient. And we ask and pray that you'd help us to be patient as we await the new heavens and new earth, as we await the Lord's return. We know that we will have much tribulation in this world, but help us to, be, uh, to, be, uh, to remember that Christ has overcome. Help us to be of good cheer knowing that our Savior has overcome and reigns supreme and will come again. And we know that all the things that we endure in this fallen world are for our good. We know that you do make everything beautiful in its time because you are the God who is very compassionate and the God who is very merciful. So help us to remember this as we go into the world. Help us to remember this as we go through uh, about, about our lives and the difficulties that we face. If there are any here today who do not know you, please save them. Please give them new life. And we are very thankful that you are gracious to forgive undeserving sinners and that sinners can find pardon for their sins in you. So thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. Help us to remember this as we go out into the world this week. And we pray these things in the name of Christ.